0: Insightful and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to the unmistakable creative wherever you get your podcasts. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row, dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Geeky Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.
1: This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture, with me, Neil Denny. This week, Georgina Harding on her latest novel, Land of the Living. Georgina Harding is the author of four previous novels The Solitude of Thomas Cave, The Spy Game, which was a BBC book at bedtime and shortlisted for the Encore Award, Painter of Silence, which was shortlisted for the Orange Prize for Fiction in 2012, and The Gun Room. And her latest novel, Land of the Living, we're going to be talking about today. Georgina, welcome to Little Atom. Thanks for having me on. So, how would you describe Land of the Living?
2: It's a story about a man returning from war. People, some people call it a war novel, but I think in a way, it's a peace novel. It's about what you can say about the war when you've come home to the peace, and how the two things don't under, the peace doesn't understand the war, and the war doesn't fit into the peace. And that's, what I, that's the idea that I really started from. So what it's about is it Charlie returning from the Burma campaign during the Second World War but he's actually been lost in the jungle. So he's observed the war as an individual rather than in the army. And he's come home and he's married and he's living on a farm in Norfolk. And all
1: four of your previous novels in some way or other deal with memory or guilt or Mm. the Mm. the legacy of war or violence in in, in some sort of way. And this one does as well. What is it about that theme that interests you?
2: I think... One novel tends to lead to another because the preoccupations that you have when you're writing a book lead on into the next book, even though they may may take on a completely different character in a different place or whatever. It's obviously a very fascinating and essential subject, so interesting to write about.
1: The very structure of this book also deals with ideas of memory and and, and remembering. Um, Tell us something about the way the book is written, because it's written in... Well, indeed, it starts off, I'd say, although it carries on in very short passages mm-hmm. and it flips backwards and forwards in time, back, you know, to the war and to the present. Tell me about the
2: structure. I think the structure, it came to me intuitively, really, as my interest in what's going on in Charlie's mind when he's come home. And it's also moving between Charlie and Claire, his wife, and it's moving between. Thus, memories of of the jungle in 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 Nagaland, which is the borders of India and Burma, and his everyday experience of farming in Norfolk, and I feel that it's just following the rhythm of 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 thought and memory, and memory is not a chronological thing. So,
1: tell us something more about Charlie Ash, then. Who is he?
2: Charlie Ash goes out to the war, I suppose, in his twenties as a young man. He's got a girlfriend at home. He finds himself in one of the kind of least known, but actually most horrific battles of the Second World War at Kohima, which was where the the Japanese advance across Asia was finally turned back, just just on the very borders of India. And there's been a terrible siege, and he's in the relief force, relieving the siege. And the Japanese flee into the jungle, and the Japanese then have to work their way all the way back through the jungle to Singapore and the British are fighting them right the way through Burma but he actually only experiences the very beginning of that Japanese retreat and he's actually becomes separated from his comrades and is lost in the jungle and he comes from I suppose a steady middle class upper middle class English rural background And when he gets back from the war, he inherits his uncle's farm. So he's put in a position, a very, very steady peacetime job. And actually, after the Second World War, when food was so short in Britain, the farmers were supposed to be the heroes. So he's got to deal with with that.
1: And farming, I mean, obviously it's incredibly hard work, but he's going into a winter and farming also gives a lot of time for contemplation.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I know that very much because my husband's now a farmer. He didn't used to be a farmer, but we actually, he's been farming for the last five years or so. And I've been learning it, something of it alongside him, though I don't drive the tractor.
1: Now, Claire, tell us something about Claire. So Charlie and Claire met before he went away in the war. Where did? Tell us talk about their meeting.
2: Claire is, I think, a very typical young woman of her generation. And she's grown up into the war, and she's had probably a lot of fun in London, as people did in those days, as I think my own parents did in those days. And she's a sociable city girl who's fallen in love with Charlie. She's not big enough yet to take on his story. She's read about war, as people read about war, in the times in England during it. And she's moved away, so she's got in a difficult position herself in that she's moved to the countryside, to the isolation of the countryside to a possibly dreary Norfolk winter with a man who's got lots of difficult memories.
1: Indeed, so it would be easy to to think that, you know, this is a story about, you know, themes of trying to deal with the aftermath of war and, indeed, the, you know, the war features heavily in the story. But as you said, it's also told from Claire's perspective and she's this, you know, person out of her own comfort zone trying to cope with living on a farm in the first place, but also with this man who's... I mean, he's a ghost. He's he's often barely there.
2: Yes. I mean, I think he's there. I hope he's there some of the time. Um, he's He seems to be... When
1: I say he's he's not there, I mean, he is basically... His mind is in two places.
2: His mind is in possibly three places, mm. in a way. He, a piece of his mind really wants to be with her. A piece of his mind is learning the farming, which is a heavy man's job. That he's And he's outdoors in the day, doing his ploughing and learning his job there. And then a, a very powerful piece of his mind is still back in, in the war I and mean, what he experienced in the war.
1: This is a story, I guess, of what now we would call PTSD as well. And obviously, in those days, that was just mm-hmm. not something that was not understood, but also not discussed. I mean, these people had come back from the war, the war was over, mm-hmm. people just want to get on with it now. And it's almost unseemly for people who have, who have experienced that to to come back and, you know, not just get on with it.
2: I think I know that a lot of people will talk about my book. And in order to, to describe my book in a kind of shorthand, and some of the reviews have done that, we'll talk about PTSD. But I actually sort of find that a limitation. And I have a problem with that in in various ways. Firstly, if you look at the Second World War, you look at a time when a whole nation has been at war, they can't all come home and be treated for PTSD. The whole society has to deal with it somehow. And what people did do after the Second World War was put it away. And yet I had a conversation with an old uncle of mine who's in his 90s the other day, who said they were actually talking about a a family drama in in our own family history, and somebody had said, oh, the Hardings were a difficult lot. And he said, actually... The Harding household wasn't nearly as difficult as lots of other households I knew at that time because the men were were recovering from the war. And he didn't say that about my book. I just thought it was fascinating that this comes out of a 90-year-old and you realise how through all that generation there was a weight of memory and there was a weight of suppression of a story that they weren't going to, going to tell. But there are other problems with this label, in a way, of PTSD, is that... I feel that what I was wanting to focus on, the post-traumatic stress disorder it's called, the disorder I wanted to focus on was more the real disorder of the war than that underlies the disorder of the man. And I think if we are too glib about PTSD, we're almost in a danger of normalising the consequences of war. And, And that bothers me. I feel PTSD should be applied to... Uh, more carefully to people who suffer from it, whose life is incapacitated by it, and to the the people who who, who treat them. Do you See what I mean?
1: There's a there's a passage in the book where um, you describe Charlie talking about the people who stayed back in England during the war, and as you said, everybody had been through this war. Although obviously mm-hmm. the combatants had had a a bigger burden, but he talks about them. You know, they want to they want to talk about it but they basically they want to know the story not the truth yeah. tell me what you mean by that
2: um, i think people at home want to believe in heroes they also want to believe Britain won the war they want to believe that the men who've come back are, are heroes they want to believe that the men they've known who've died and haven't come back were also heroes so you need you need a myth and people have always been we've been writing myths about war since we started to write and the truths I think are very different.
1: When we're going to the second part of the interview, we're going to talk more about India and um we'll talk about the landscape when we do. Um, before we do that, I wanna talk about the Norfolk landscape and, and the mm-hmm. farm. So tell me something about the farm and describing that, writing that Norfolk landscape.
2: I actually live on a farm in Essex, in the sort of Essex Suffolk border, which is much gentler than the Norfolk landscape. I chose the Norfolk landscape because it is so much flatter and it's more abstract. I was interested in the Norfolk landscape because it's that much further away from my home and I find it very difficult to write about what's so close to me. And the Essex landscape where I live is softer, tamer, more little undulations, more hedges. The Norfolk landscape has some big, bare stretches and that's where I wanted to put Charlie. So he's facing what's in his head rather than details of the landscape around him.
1: And indeed the contrast couldn't be harder.
2: From Nagaland, from from the the mountains of, of Assam, yes.
0: The late bloomers tend to have more curiosity. They tend to have more resilience. There are stories and mythology that this country has woven around Black men. What if everything we've been taught is just all wrong? What's worth
1: more than this fear right now? And that
0: rising after failure...
1: It's part of the glory of being a human being.
0: Listen to deeply personal, insightful, and thought-provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts.
1: Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank.
0: LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't
1: actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. You're to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, today I'm talking to Georgina Harding and we're talking about her latest novel, Land of the Living. We finished off Georgina just then just mentioning Nagaland, which is uh, where the, the Battle of Kohima takes place. I guess really something of now a lesser known incident of the Second World War, though absolutely shouldn't be. Is this one of the reasons you wanted to write about it?
2: I found myself writing about Kahima and going to Kohima to research the book, really because this book grew out of, as all, as I say, all my books mm. tend to evolve from the one before. This book grew out of my previous book, The Gun Room, which had a, a man who's a, a photographer, a war photographer in the 70s in Vietnam, who's a witness of war, and who's kind of a witness by his nature or fate, because he's witnessed his father's Disturbance, his father's depression following, and or trauma following the Second World War in Burma. And I went seeking his father in a way. So I went to Khmer to seek something about the Burma campaign. What I discovered when I got there, it's the most extraordinary place and it was, has been closed to travellers for most of my lifetime. And I've known about Nagaland and wanted to go there, but there's been a long-term insurgency for independence from India. And only in the last half dozen years has it been possible to go there as a tourist freely and i got there and it's the most wonderfully remote place you stand on the hilltop and look over endless jagged jungle mountainous ridges and and it seems amazing that such a critical battle in the war should have been fought there and extraordinary that armies should have come from britain and japan and had a showdown there and what then really interested me was that i realized it isn't just a a remote piece of land where the British war machine met the Japanese war machine. But it was a piece of land that was inhabited by ancient tribes of headhunters. And the British, in the really quite brief period of administration there, had been trying to dissuade the headhunters from headhunting and instead had this huge war and left 10,000 bodies scattered across the place. So I found this this whole meeting of different warrior cultures really interesting and that was obviously where I was going to write my book.
1: Tell us something more about what actually happens in the, in the siege. There's a what sounds like you know, the parochially named Battle of the Tennis
2: Court. <laughs> right. Um, this was the Japanese encircled a small British detachment in this hilly, hilly landscape of Kohima. And they actually, the, the British re- retracted into a very small area, which was basically the grounds of the district commissioner's bungalow and his tennis court. And at some point in the battle, there were lines drawn uh, across the width of the tennis court. So you can imagine how much hand-to-hand fighting there was going on there. And it was also at the beginning of the rains, the monsoons. It was like a, a tiny little piece of the Somme. And what's fascinating is that the man who was district commissioner, who was a rather fine character called Pawsey, had actually fought at the Somme. And he finds himself in the, in, in, a, in a repeat battle... And I did meet an old soldier who lived in the next village to me in Essex who was there during the siege and said that this district commissioner would come round every morning and say hello to them all, which was rather fine.
1: I wanted to talk a bit more about, about researching it. So obviously, as you said, you, you visited Kohima yourself, mm-hmm. and we could talk about that in a second, but tell us some other, something else about, about the research into the actual
2: battle. So I researched the sort of standard military volumes about the battle, but I actually got waylaid and distracted by two things, by the Nagas themselves who were so interesting, and also but only a little bit of that comes out in the book, by the stories of the of the British colonial officials there some of whom who were actually a rather sympathetic lot for colonial officials who were really interested in the naga who spent their free time doing a lot of ethnography studying at naga art and writing a lot of letters to each other which i could go and find in the british museum so so i got i got distracted by them
1: and there's a character in the book hussy who he's, clearly is based on that
2: he's sort of derived from from all of them yeah
1: and he indeed he he sort of embodies towards the end of the book we're not going to talk too much about what, what happens in the book in terms, of, in terms of the plot but you know, towards the end of the book he visits Charlie on the farm and he sort of represents this I guess sort of post-colonial guilt of you know the, the futility of what those functionaries or, or what little they could do basically as, as administrators
2: I think it was a very strange moment that moment of the, the, the end of the empire and also the winning of the war and I don't think Britain's quite managed to deal with that yet. No, no yet.
1: still not um, yet. Yeah. And indeed, no, another exactly. one of the convulsions of that is taking place as we, as we speak, really in Brexit. I think
2: it is. I mean, I hate to think about it, but I feel that Hus, that my character, the, the return colonial administrator, with this huge sense of the futility of his work, um, I think of the whatever, whoever's going to be returning from Brussels next year. We'll see. The
1: Naga people. Tell us something more about them and, and their culture. There. Charlie is basically. He's injured and rescued, I guess, would yes. be the word, and yes. um, spends some time, months, living in a Naga village and recuperating. I guess really sort of starts to have mixed feelings about whether he wants to leave in some respects. Tell us something about those people and their culture at this time.
2: The Nagas Charlie meets, the, I think they offer him really a haven from the war, and yet they are warriors, they are warlike people, so there was some interesting contradictions there that he has to work out. He meets them as individuals, not as a particular tribe. Obviously, an anthropologist would be studying them, working out what tribe they were. I have spent, spent a little bit of time with two different Naga tribes, but there are dozens of them. And really, the people in my book, I think, are behaving as individuals rather than according to particular tribal customs. The area where they live is so extraordinarily remote and so so topographically impenetrable. That it had never been conquered by anybody. It's never been it was never ruled by India. It was never ruled by Burma. The tribes were quite independent of each other, speaking different dialects. I mean, rather like people in the Amazon or Papua New Guinea. And actually, they have a lot of a lot in common with some of the tribes in Papua New Guinea and Melanesia. So nobody really knows where they originated from. And they were a culture of headhunting since, as far as we know. And during the period of the British administration, there was a number of Baptist missionaries had been converting them to Christianity. The British were trying to civilise them. Anthropologists were studying them. But as yet, some tribes had been entirely uncontacted by white people at that point.
1: And so, as, um, you, as you said, you've, you've been there and you've spent time with some of those people. What's it like now for them?
2: It's in a sort of difficult state of development, Narkaland, really, the tribes who are most urbanised, most educated close to Kohima, um, there are some really beautiful villages and I could go and stay in a guest house for a week and take lovely walks and witness a really rather fine way of life and a rather fine, traditional, sustainable form of agriculture on tiers of rice terraces. And they're Christian and they talk about the old headhunting days like some hazy, distant, almost mythical past. There are other tribes I went to see close to the Burmese border who are in a much more difficult stage of development and have practised slash and burn for a long time so the landscape around is is eroded and, and um, very bare. And among them you'll find a lot of old men who still wear the tattoos that show they, were, they took a head or they were part of a clan that took a head at some point in their career. And they wear extraordinary headdresses made with wild boars, tusks and tiger's teeth and feathers and what have you. And they still keep on to a degree, a lot of the old traditions. I realise that the most recent headhunting instance actually was as recent as 1990 and 1983. So there were still feuds between tribes.
1: We talked about, I mean, and part of the book is, is concerned with the the sort of futility of the British administration in that part of the world. And, and indeed, when you look at Nagaland on a map now and where it is in relation to, you know, the, the centres of power of India, what's the relationship between the Indian government and Nagaland?
2: The British administrators who were on the ground in Nagaland at the end of, end of the Second World War and at the beginning of independence really felt that the Nagas should be given some kind of autonomy. And the Nagas had helped the British through the siege and through the war. And it's possible that the Japanese defeat would not have been achieved without them. So they felt they had a responsibility to give to the Nagas. And partition happened. Independence of partition happened so quickly. And messages were sent up to the governor in Assam or Delhi or London. And nobody really paid any attention to the fate of the Nagas. And so Nagaland was incorporated into India... And the Nagas were classified as scheduled tribes along with other very other indigenous groups of people in India. And they were not given a position as a separate state. And they started, they were warlike people anyway, so an insurgency began in nineteen forty seven that is still was at some points really quite bloody and is still continuing in a in a, a, a small way today. And there are rebels actually just outside the borders of India in the in the hills in Burma. Who will come in, and there are terrorist incidents still in Nagaland now as they fight for independence?
1: I want to talk about writing about the jungle, and we talked in the first part about there's the contrast between the flat and bleak North Norfolk landscape yes. um, um, which is where where this book is set, and the contrast of the you know the vertical jungle there 's a, a running joke through the book that you know people when they talk about the jungle of India, I that it's hot and steamy and there are tigers. Mm. And yet it's, you know, this is a mountainous, cold region, despite being, you know, heavily forested. Tell me something about how you approached writing about the jungle in contrast to the Norfolk landscape. Because the two sections, they read very differently. The description in the jungle sort of really pops off the page where it's it's more restrained it seems to me in the in the Norfolk
2: section I find those jungle landscapes terribly exciting to travel through I I, I'd love height and it's a very it's it's at high altitude which is why it can be so cold and you can sit on a on a peak and you just can look for endless distances in any direction and just see ridge upon ridge upon ridge of mountains and the clouds moving between them I mean I could spend days just watching cloud moving between mountains so I was excited about that. And what's interesting, when you walk there, you'll be going up and down thousands of feet. So you're moving from one zone to another and from one form of vegetation to another. So you get down the bottom and there'll be some rushing streams and lush green things and colourful butterflies. And high up will be a, a different world altogether. So I think it's, it's just my, my interest in all that, that landscape that comes through. But there is one factor that I felt really united the two landscapes in my book, which was mist, and I know, I know, particularly in the winter, if you're out on the plough, you know you know the mist then, and there was mist, particularly the period that Charlie is in Nagaland, which is through the rains. The mist has the most extraordinary tactile quality there. So I think that runs all the way through.
1: Just one more thing from me, Georgina, before I get you to, to read a bit of the book, if you would. I'd normally ask what other books were an influence on this particular book, and... And it strikes me here in this case that there is both the post-war rural English novel and, you know, the colonial novel, the war novel. There's lots of different things going on here. Where does this all sort of... Where does this come from?
2: I don't think it comes from any... From, I don't think I have any literary inspiration or source for it. It just it sort of grew on its own. I find I write very much from images and I I'm almost feel that, particularly with a book like this, where I'm moving from one thing to another, that I'm almost writing film, but I'm putting it in words in a book. I've chosen this section because it moves rather as the book does between the British and the Nagas and the battle and the peace. And it's where Charlie is walking on the beach in Norfolk with his wife Claire, feeling the need to tell her things that perhaps he might be able to tell her or perhaps he can't, but it, though his memories are coming back to him on the beach. His hands in his pockets, his eyes on the edge of the waves, he began again to speak. After the battle, there was a Naga boy who came out of the forest. The fighting was over. The Japs were gone. The whole town was destroyed up to the forest edge. Even parts of the forest around it destroyed. Broken trees beyond the broken huts. This boy came out like an apparition from where the devastation ended a thick green jungly wall from which you might have thought only some scavenging animal might emerge, out between the leaves and creepers. I saw him from a distance, just happening to glance over that way, a small moving figure where everything had seemed either wild or dead. He walked straight out from that jungle into the battlefield as if he was going somewhere, self-possessed and deliberate like a child walking to school or walking back home after school, and he didn't stop until he came close to where we were working. I had the sense that he knew precisely where he was. Perhaps that was what he was doing, he was going home. Perhaps this was where his house had been, or his school. He must have been about the age of that boy we just met, seven or eight, I should think, or perhaps a little older if he was a Naga, as the Nagas tend to be small. They'd been living in the jungle all through the battle. They'd fled there right at the beginning, they'd been there for months, and slowly now they were coming out to find what was left of their homes and their land. I don't know why this boy was alone. I kept looking back to where he had come, expecting some others, expecting his family to follow. He was a skinny little chap, as I don't think they'd had much to eat for all of that time, with very black hair in a pudding basin cut. They have very shiny black hair, the Nagas, wearing nothing but a pair of two big khaki shorts and a necklace of red and yellow beads. She was attentive, as if he had the whole story planned to tell her. He paused, fell back a step, turned to look for the dog. It was a bit of war one didn't mention. One mentioned battlefields, but one didn't explain what was there. What was there already when they arrived? What had massed there all through the siege, what the burial details were doing as the army began to grind on ahead. But Claire had waited for him. She wanted him to go on with whatever he'd been saying. The boy had bare feet. The Naga boy was treading so neatly, barefoot, between the bodies. He remembered looking down at the boy's feet in the mud. As the dog came to them, he picked up a piece of driftwood automatically and threw it away ahead. It landed where a wave came in and licked it. And Jess caught it as the wave receded, her tail wagging in the foam. Small feet, living feet, mud squeezed between the toes, spatters of mud on his legs. The softness of his steps in the mud, the quiet of him. Knowing that all this wasn't right, that they were here, that they'd done this to his world.
1: So I've been talking to Georgina Harding. We've been talking about her latest novel, Land of the Living, which is out now from Bloomsbury. Georgina, thank you so much for coming yeah, in and thank, talking about thank you. it. Thank you.
0: Insightful and thought provoking stories from the world's leading thinkers and doers. Listen and subscribe to The Unmistakable Creative wherever you get your podcasts. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello?